from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University. This is Writer's Talk. I'm Doug Dangler. Today, I talk to Susan Kane, author of Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World that Can't Stop Talking. But first, OSU alumnus and current lecturer Alexis Martina hears Daylin McEwen's comments on Being a Stupid Kid. The title of Daylin McEwen's latest edited collection of stories in the Not Your Mother's Book series. Stay tuned. My name is Alexis Martina, and I am here interviewing Delyn McEwen. She is the CEO and publisher of Publishing Syndicate. She is also a writer, an editor, a consultant, and an app developer. Uh, Did I miss anything, Delyn? (laughs) Oh, you got, you hit some of them. Pretty I hit good. some of them. There's a lot of things in there. She's very, very accomplished in the writing, editing, publishing, consulting world. And so we are just thrilled to have her um, on Writer's Talk today. Um, we are mainly going to talk about this fantastic series um, that Delyn's, uh publishing house, Publishing Syndicate, um, has come out with, which is called the Not Your Mother's Book series. And I specifically have been really reading the On Being a Stupid Kid, which which is the uh, latest um, release from the Not Your Mother's Book series, which is brilliant and hilarious. Uh, being a new mom myself, I am sure my son will have lots of stories to get in here. Um, so, Dylan, let me just thank you so much for being here with us today. Well, thank you, Alexis. It's an honor to be able to talk to your listeners, especially there at Ohio State. Absolutely. Um, and so just kind of to begin with, I, I in your intro there, I, I mentioned a few of the things that you have, have done. Um, but can you actually talk a little bit um, about your background in writing, editing, and kind of how you got to this point? You have a really interesting story. Um, I am much older than probably many of your listeners. I will be 50 next year. Um, back in 1988, I had finished my bachelor's degree at the University of San Francisco because I am a California girl. And I went back to the junior college because I didn't want to pay back my student loan. I thought, how can I, if I could take six six units, I won't have to start paying back, you know, like my, my Fannie Mae loan. And so I went to into a class at junior college called Writing for Publication. And the instructor there showed me how to do a query letter. Now, mind you, query letters back then were typed on typewriters. We didn't really have computers then. Showed me how to do a query letter, taught me the nature of the business, of the publishing world. I sent it to our local paper here, the Sacramento Bee, and in the first semester of the class, I sold 75 articles to the Sacramento Bee. So I had a knack for writing. I just didn't understand the business of writing. The gentleman, the teacher, took me under his wing, and I consider him my second dad. He's my best friend in the whole world, and he is, he introduced me to Jack Canfield over at Chicken Soup for the Soul books. I ended up becoming a co-author for Chicken Soup, spent 10 years there creating books with Jack Canfield, Mark Victor Hansen. Um, I've sold thousands of articles. I ghostwrite for major CEOs and Fortune 100, 500 founders, uh, even have ghostwritten for a former president, and have just gone on to do lots and lots of writing things. But all it took was one instructor at a college to show me how to do it and lit the fire underneath me, and I haven't stopped. That is amazing. And and, and I like that you, you you say, you know, you had this knack for writing, but you didn't quite understand the business of writing. What do you, what do you mean the business of writing? Oh, with, there's politics and everything. From in, in publishing, in, in, in every job that you have, you have to understand how the nature of the beast works, the industry, and how and what is expected of you. And you also need to be able to change with the industry that you've chosen to go into. And it's just, 
you know, it's, it's making those contacts. It's understanding what they need. A little bit of schmoozing, actually, a lot of schmoozing in the <laughs> publishing world, and 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 being there and just doing the best that you can do. Not to give up. Not rejection's a big, big thing in the publishing world. You can send in a hundred query letters to a magazine in rejection after rejection. At first, that really bothered me. Then I thought, you know what? I'm going to prove them wrong. I'm going to go out there and show them that I can do this. And it might not be with this newspaper. Maybe it's another newspaper. You can hit an editor on a bad day. They don't like it, but the next day, maybe they will. So never, ever give up. And I never did. And I, once I got to over 2,000 articles published and all those tear sheets, because back then we didn't have the computer. We had everything, all my tear sheets in, news, in uh, boxes. I finally stopped counting. It just got to be so much... That's when I turned my goal into my being published so many times instead to helping others get published. Wow. And that really does seem to be the message of Publishing Syndicate is really um, in, in the, all the, the literature and the, the website. There's this very strong message of just really wanting to help people achieve their dreams of publication. We have over 2,000 writers that have subscribed to the WOW Principles newsletter. We have helped other writers go on to become very successful I wanted to do what my mentor, the teacher I spoke about earlier, Bud Gardner, what he did for me and to help others become successful. And many of them have gone on to do great things. And it's just like I'm a mama, you know, the, the mama bear taking <laughs> care of its, taking care of its cubs. And it's so much fun to hear people say, you know, I never thought about writing an article until you talked to me. I did it. And if I knew if I could sell that article, I could do something else great. So it's like a pay it forward. Everybody helps everybody else. Absolutely. And it's just been wonderful. Wow. You, well, and, I, and wow, you mentioned the Wow Principles um, our, uh, newsletter. Can what what is that? Can you talk a little bit about that? We started the Wow Principles back in the early 2000s, and it's a monthly newsletter. We just released our our, other, our December issue yesterday on history, on historical writing. But we offer a monthly newsletter, writing, publishing tips, um, special story callouts for anthologies. The writers work together, especially now since we have social media. We do a lot on Facebook. We have a real popular Facebook page, mm-hmm. Publishing Syndicate. And every month we offer something new. We have guest authors come in and do our articles for us. We do tips on grammar, um, just anything and everything. I've done 85 of these in a row, 85 months wow. in a row. So <laughs> trying to come up with different topics, revisiting topics that we talked about four or five years ago, how the industry has changed, the, the, the development of ebooks. It's, it's been just a wonderful, wonderful chance for us to help give back to writers who are just starting out. It, it, the, the, the newsletter is so informative and just kind of a bit of disclosure here to listeners. I'm a teacher and I'm going to be including some of these newsletters in my required readings for next semester. Uh, because oh, oh, please do. They, and all 85 issues are on our website. You can read yes, the entire backlist if you like. Yep. I was digging into those the, last night and they're, they're really, really great um, and valuable. And one of the things that actually strikes me as you're talking a little bit about this, um, and, and something you said earlier, or two with, with the idea of changing. You said the necessity of changing with the industry. Um, and then you mentioned a couple times technology and, and just in some of the few topics that you just mentioned, you know, e-readers and things like that and, and the idea of social media. And so, I mean, how have you seen the industry kind of change over the years? Oh, you're going to make me sound old again. Oh. I did mention I was going to be 50, though. <laughs> again, I wrote my first query letter on a typewriter. Right. That's, that's sort of scary. Students, we you can Google Matrix. that later. Sorry. Yeah, then, then, then we went to Dot Matrix, and then, woo, we got fax machines. Boy, that was, that was just really <laughs> cool because you could fax your story. And, but um, 
technology has changed. A lot of my articles that I mentioned I'd done over 2,000, a lot of them were multiple submissions where I took a story and focused it on one newspaper, then I switched it up oh, okay. and changed the lead and sent it to another newspaper mm -hmm. out of the readership so I was able to take one story and sell it 30 or 40 times. So you really repurposed your content there. Yeah, and, and I love fax machines because back then, mm -hmm. again, we didn't really have the Internet. But in regards to technology changing, it is now, it slowly moved, it slowly changed back then, but now it's just moving so fast, it's hard for us to keep up as a publisher. We don't have to put print orders into our printer for 65,000 books because we have a, an elaborated version of print on demand, like through Lightning Source mm -hmm. or even Create Space with Amazon. We can go ahead and put orders in and get them back to us right away. So we don't, uh, as a company, we don't have to have that much warehouse space. You know, the square footage for where our books go, the, 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 the footprint, how, because if you have 65,000 books, that's a lot of storage you need to have. Right. In this case, we're able to go ahead and just order books and have two or 3,000 come in at a time. So it makes it a lot easier, more convenient if we need to make changes all of a sudden. Perfect example. I did chicken soup for the soul of menopause, and I was doing that one with Whoopi Goldberg, who had to pull out at the last minute, but that's another whole story. <laughs> but on the back, we were getting ready to send them to Oprah. And on the back of it, we had laugh out load laugh out loud anecdotes. So we had 65,000 copied or prints made and we got the back and it said laugh out load anecdotes. Oh. And they had the wrong word on it. Eight different editors looked at that back cover copy, including me. I, and I hadn't seen it. I, books came in. I opened the box and I went, oh, I, I said something I probably shouldn't say on air. <laughs> but <laughs> but the ability, if we were only getting two or 3,000 books and we can make that change really quick, we had to redo that entire print run. Wow. Because, because it was wrong on the back. So technology has helped. Technology is also really frustrating sometimes when you can't, and, and that's another whole show in and of itself. Sure. But, but in our business, and it's even, even, um, I can go into more depth about distributors having to adjust because now ebooks are becoming more popular. You're just, you're distributor between the publisher and the, and the bookstores. It's really not necessary for them, not necessary to be there. I guess it's sort of the wrong word, but, they're not used as much. They're losing a lot of their business of putting books into bookstores. Out here in California, all the Borders bookstores are gone. Right. Yeah. They, in Columbus here, they're gone too. And it's just, oh, there's so much we can talk about, Alexis, but I'll, I'll let you continue <laughs> asking fine. your question. Well, well, no, I thank you. That's, that's actually really interesting, thinking about the kind of the logistics side um, of of this, a piece of the, the writing publishing industry. Um, I'm also interested, though, in the kind of people management side of what you do, uh, because not your mother's book, um, particularly in, in, you know, like Chicken Soup and things like that, are uh, collections of stories with by a bunch of different authors. And I'm interested in kind of how you actually gather these people and get writing from them and get editing from them and how that kind of, the, like I said, the people management part. Well, I could tell you right off the bat, you cannot do an anthology without wonderful writers, wonderful consultants, copy editors, proofreaders, layout uh, people. Uh, you have your cover, your artwork. It's just it's a collection of, of the work of people. It's a collection of stories from people like you and me. Um, it takes a lot to put together one of these books. And for every 50 or 60 stories that make a book, you have to get several hundred stories in it. When I was at Chicken, we were getting between five to 10,000 story contributions per book. Yeah, and then you have all the legal forms that go with that, and then the editorial, and it's, it's, it's a big job, but it's worth it for my husband, Ken, who's also um, our, our president and managing editor here at Publishing Syndicate, 
to be able to pick up the phone or send an email to somebody for the, who's never been published before and say, Alexis, guess what? We love your story. We'd like to buy it. And for them just to hear that, oh, my God, you're kidding. Really? You want my story? I can't believe it. And to give them that, empower them to have that feeling of I did it. I did something. So with these collections and working with these all these different contributors from all over the world, it has just been a ball. There's a a lot of work behind it, but it is definitely worth it. That's fantastic. You're listening to Writer's Talk from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University with guest host Alexis Martina talking to Taylin McEwen, editor of the book On Being a Stupid Kid. More information is available at www.writerstalk.org. Now, how did you actually get the idea for the Not Your Mother's Book series? Where did this come from? Oh, heavens, I knew you were going to ask me that. <laughs> um, and, and during my 10 years with Chicken Soup, we did, I did four books where I shared a byline with Jack Canfield and Mark Victor Hansen. Many more books we just created. Uh, a lot of them we edited, we consulted, we did special print runs, special books that were really not released to the public, um, like corporate books. And during that time, I read over 100,000 story submissions. And we had this litmus test, and it's funny because you're back in the Midwest. The litmus test was when, as I read a story, if I thought it was going to offend or or upset that Kansas City housewife, <laughs> then we would have to delete the story. And it wasn't really changing with the times in the, in the 2000s, things becoming more progressive uh, story. Look, just look at network TV, how that's changed over the last four or five years. But a lot of these stories were just going by the wayside. You killed me to have to delete them, but I did. And so... In 2008, Jack and Mark sold their company and moved to a different uh, management company in Connecticut. We no longer went down to Santa Barbara to Jack's house to put together the books. And um, we stayed on for another year. And then after that, it was just time for us to move on. It was time for us to go do something different. We did some travel writing, developed those apps that you talked about in our, in our wine writing. And finally, I said, you know, we need to do, we need to offer a book that is completely different than Chicken Soup, that... It gives these writers a chance to really say what they want to say. We need to be more hip, more current, more contemporary. We need to be the Ellen to Chicken's Oprah. We need to, our, our books are, 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 we compare them as two and a half men to Chicken's Little House on the Prairie. <laughs> we need to be different. And let me tell you, once we posted the Not Your Mother's book, and of course it's a black cover, which is going to be totally different than Chicken, no sad, sappy, death and dying, or um, preachy stories in our books. We do not use those at all. And we received more stories from Missouri, Ohio, Illinois. We need to receive more stories for our book series from the Midwest than any place else yep, in the nation. Those Kansas City housewives wanted to get their stories told. Yeah, they're a little edgy, racy. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is funny because that was our litmus test. We didn't want to offend them. So I love it. I thought it was just absolutely wonderful. And the stories are funny coming in. Some of these titles that we have coming in, I just look at them and go, oh, my goodness, how do we do that? Some of the titles we can't even see on air. <laughs> well, you said there are over 30 in development? Yes, we have 30 books under development. We do have, the first one that was out was uh, On Being a Woman. Hilarious, by the way. It'll make, it'll make you blush. <laughs> uh, the second one is On Being a Stupid Kid. All those things that baby boomers did as kids. Ugh. Things that we would probably get arrested for today if we did them today. Yep. Um, on Dogs just came out last week. We have uh, stories, we have several coming out with a, the Titles are closed, but we need stories on do-it-yourselfers, on dating, um, on college. We really need stories for the on-college book. Oh, college Anybody kids, who, listen up. <laughs> yes, and in all those crazy things you did in college, 
uh, submission guidelines are on our website, and those stories that we do use and publish, the contributors are compensated. And they get to do the whole media tour with us. Wow, that is so cool. And you get to work then with so many different people. Oh, and you'll learn so much, too, because say, so we have a book come in, we will pick the first round, it's the first 100 stories, we'll do a first round selection, the editors will go through and start working with the contributors. You don't have to be a super duper writer to have a story in one of our books, as long as you have a good story. Our editors will work with you, you'll go through the whole copy editing process, proofreading process, all the legal forms will teach you how to read the contracts. Mm-hmm. We want to train you. So the next wow. book, you just come right in, blow right through, front your story, and you're out the door, and you're you're moving on to the next book, too, so... But we again, we want to give back to writers. We want to help them be successful. That's great. Um, how does the organizational scheme for the books kind of arise? Because there are so many different stories, like you're mentioning, and the they're organized pretty well, actually, you know, really well in into different themes. But I would imagine that that's also a bit of a process. Oh, it sure is. We couldn't do this without our co-creators. Think of Ken and I as the Jack and Mark. If you, if you're going to compare uh-huh. chicken soup. So sure. we oversee the whole process and then we hire co-creators. They have a full book deal with us. And for instance, like on the stupid kids book, it's Laurel McHarg. She right. lives in Leadville, Colorado. And so she goes through, she reads all the story submissions, understanding our process and our models. She'll, she's the first one who takes, who decides the first round selection of those stories. She does, works on the editing. And then they deliver a manuscript to us by a certain date. We're we're there for the process and we help them along. But again, once Laurel's done one book now, she's doing the dating book. She understands from beginning to end the entire publishing process. We bring on new co-creators all the time. Uh, we do about eight books a year because we just don't have the NIM books. We call them NIM to short for the Not Your Mother's Book. Mm-hmm. We also have two other anthologies we're working on right now. Um, that we need stories for an anthology called OMG My Reality, Kids, Teens, and Preteens. So if you, your listeners have something funny that happened to them in high school, we'd love to see their stories. 25 years and younger, we accept stories for that series. And it's a chicken soupy series. You know, it's, there's nothing edgy in that series. We also have one called My Story is Out, High School Years, and it's for the LGBTQ community. And we need about 20 more stories to finish that book. All of our information is on our website. Wow. What a cool opportunity for people to to get published, and it sounds like you really help them through the process. Um, we sure do. And and I also, I'm just thinking about the copy editors that you must have. You know, have a really great band of core, <laughs> trustworthy copy editors to be dealing with the different content from all different kinds of authors as well. And I have to I have to share something with you, and I haven't really done this on air with anybody. I flunked English in college. I cannot tell you what a dangling participle is or an adverb or an adjective or, and one of our copy editors, Terry Elders, she has, she has got me trained. She has said, Delin, you can't do this and you have to do this and I'm, I'm learning. But here, from somebody who flunked, practically flunked English in school, but I can write and sell, I understand what sounds good to me because I read so much as a kid. Mm-hmm. And, but not understanding the, the, why you can't do this or, in regards to grammar, I have a lot of people to keep me in check, and I am so thankful for them to do that. As you can tell, I'm more of a talker. Hey, <laughs> <And a schmoozer. laughs> that's fantastic. I mean, it, it takes so many different people with so many different kinds of talents um, to make something like this successful. And it, the really the the proof is in the the the, the reading of the these books and you know, how funny they are and engaging and. 
well written and copy edited and all of those things. Um, I, oh well, thank you, Alexis. I, you have to send in your stories. We've got the parenting book coming out. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, so, last question for you, if I may. Um, yeah. Do you have your own stupid kid moment that you can share with us? Oh no! I just did an interview. I'm doing radio interviews every day, and I did one in Bismarck, North Dakota. <laughs> and again, I'm a California girl. Okay. Right. And and we have a family dairy farm back there, my dad's family. And unfortunately, the, the, the farm was lost about 10 years ago. But when I was 15, 16, I would go back and work on the dairy farm. So the, the, the host asked me the same question. I did so many things back then my parents had no idea of. And I thought <laughs> back to we had the dairy farm. Um, after the cows would come through the chute, and we'd put them on the milk machines, and they would go back out. We'd have on our high boots up to our knees, and, and we'd start drinking beer. And again, it was back in the 70s. And then we would we would slide down the whole length of the barn, and plow into a, a pile of cow poop, and then and then there's other things I could probably say, but I wrong. <laughs> that is a, that's a fantastic and, visual. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, but there, there are a lot of things that, that I did, and unfortunately, that we try not to put our stories in the book. We want people to have the the space to put their stories in. So there's a lot of my I could have wrote. I also grew up on the grounds of Folsom Prison, so there. Wow. Which is about a mile from where I'm at. Yeah, my dad worked out there. And there's a lot of stories I can tell, but we'll save that for another day. Uh, all right. Thank you. Oh, my goodness. Dolan, I really can't thank you enough for, for giving us some time. I know you're really busy right now um, and have tons of these interviews. Um, and you're just delightful. And I really appreciate you uh, taking some time to talk with us today. Well, thank you. When you when you asked for the interview, I was so thrilled to be able to talk to the students there at Ohio State University. It means a lot to us. Mm-hmm. I, I want to do what my mentor, Bud Gardner, did for me, and it's to give back and to help people. So please, send in the stories. And even at the beginning of the story, when you send it, say, I'm, a, I'm part of the, the Ohio State University program, right at the beginning of your story, and we'll, we'll take an extra look at it. Oh, great. Well, thank you so much. People, listen up. Good stuff here. Delyn McEwen, Publishing Syndicate. You. What is your, what's your website? PublishingSyndicate.com. We have a fun Facebook page at Publishing Syndicate. Please join. We do contests. Um, you can go to Goodreads.com and see some of our books up there. And, and let's get everybody published. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks again. You're listening to Writer's Talk from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing. And that was guest host Alexis Martina talking to Taylin McEwen about On Being a Stupid Kid. More information is available at www.facebook.com slash writers talk. And now, my interview with Susan Kane. Susan Kane has written for the New York Times, The Atlantic, and Time.com. Her 2012 book, Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking, spent 42 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list and has been translated into 30 languages. The paperback edition has a January 29th publication date. Hello, Susan Kane. Hello, Doug. What led you, Susan Kane, to write Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking? Well, you know, I kind of looked around at the world, <laughs> and I saw that many of the people who have really contributed to society in profound ways, um, some of our great creators like J.K. Rowling and Charles Darwin and Dr. Seuss, many of our great leaders like Eleanor Roosevelt and Gandhi and Rosa Parks, that these people were quiet and introverted and reflective and that they did what they did because of who they were, not in spite of it. And yet, 
we live in a in a culture that tells people that they should be extroverts, they should be bold, they should be assertive, they should be outgoing and gregarious, even if that's not who they are. And, and it just seemed to me that this is a huge waste of talent, it's a waste of energy, and it's a waste of personal happiness for all the introverts out there who feel as if they are supposed to be someone who they're not, when we'd all be much better off if, they, if introverts could just uh, be who they are. Now, you describe yourself as an introvert, so I'm curious about how the exceptional success of this book has impacted you. How did writing it and the reception of it change your sense of self? One thing that was interesting for me is when I first embarked on this project back in 2005, and you know, I had never written a word in my life at that point, and I thought that by writing about this topic, I thought it was a kind of weird and risky thing to do because, you know, introversion has a kind of stigma about it, or at least it did. I couldn't really anticipate exactly that it would get this reaction. I think the writing and the reception that I got kind of gave me the sense of personal validation that I think the book has given to other people, you know, and, and by now I've really come to a place of pretty deep self-acceptance as an introvert. Yeah, you don't really expect vocal acceptance from introverts, but that seems to be what has happened with your book that has been so well embraced by so many in the introvert and extrovert community as well. I really enjoyed your description of the Tony Robbins seminar, especially the story you relate about an exercise in enthusiastic greetings whose failure will result in, quote, everyone you care about will die like pigs in hell. <laughs> right. How long did it take you to recover from the Tony Robbins experience? <laughs> it's funny that you say that because that experience was so strong and so overwhelming. I found myself dreaming about it for months afterwards. I was dreaming about Tony Robbins, and I bet you I'm not the only one. <laughs> it's such a larger-than-life experience. You know, you're in a room full of people for about three and a half days, I think, and you're there from morning till night. So it's like a 16-hour day, and there are no breaks at all. You eat inside the room. You do everything inside the room. All of it with Tony Robbins up there for the whole entire time. It's kind of larger-than-life personality with the room oriented around him. It's a very, it's a very strange experience. What were your dreams of Tony Robbins like? Were they just nightmares about this? Were they anxiety dreams? What was the experience? No, they were neither. They were just, he was there. <laughs> I don't even know what he was doing. I can't really remember. Okay. Um, but <laughs> he's a larger than life figure, literally and metaphorically. I mean, literally, I, I think he's probably about six five, maybe. I don't know. He's a big guy. Metaphorically, you know, as I say, he's at the center of this gigantic big group experience. And I think implicitly and explicitly, the point of the Tony Robbins weekend is, you know, follow this advice and you can be more like him, which is to say more like more energetic, more gregarious, more of all these things. And, and so that's what interested me about the weekend and, and about the self-help movement in general. You know, the idea of self-help is follow this, this advice and you will become more like the ideal self. Well, what is that ideal self? That's what I wanted to figure out. And the ideal self that was on display in that room was very much um, an extroverted self. And so I think there's an implicit discomfort there for introverts who are thinking, well, this isn't actually who I am. And so maybe there must be something wrong with who I am. And in fact, there is not. You know, I enjoyed or appreciated that you do go to the lengths uh, several times to say that this isn't something that anybody is one side or the other. Nobody is purely introvert, purely extrovert. You talk a lot about the challenges of the person-situation debate. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that debate and how it informed your writing of the book. Yeah. So the person-situation debate has been uh, raging in psychology circles for decades. The question underlying the debate is, are we who we are because we have some kind of an inborn personality or do we shift our personality depending on the situation? You know, and all of us do the latter to some extent. So I'm sure you've all had experiences where 
you were, let's say, introverted with one group of friends, but extroverted with another group. But more or less, I come down on the personal side of that debate, which is to say the side that says there is something fundamental to who we are. And, you know, so I see in my own case, even though there's some situations where you meet me and you might think I'm an extrovert from the way I'm acting, but fundamentally I lean towards wanting lots of quiet time, towards preferring one-on-one conversations over a big group and that kind of thing. On your Amazon page, you note that you, quote, use a lot of old-fashioned expressions. <laughs> it would be the bee's knees if you could share one or two of those with us, these sorts of old-fashioned, perhaps writerly expressions. I might say something like, if that's true, I'll eat my hat. All right. Well, Susan Kane, thank you very much for joining me today on Writer's Talk. I recommend your book, Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking, and I look forward to your next project. Thank you so much, Doug. Take care. Thank you. You've been listening to Writer's Talk from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University with my guest, Susan Kane and Dalen McCowan with guest host, OSU alumnus and lecturer, Alexis Martina. More information about any of our guests can be found at www.writerstalk.org. Until next time, this is Doug Dangler. Keep writing. <laughs>